welcome to episode 136 of The Great Escape Minute, the daily podcast where we dig into The Great Escape one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me this week is a very special guest. I have Stephen J. Rubin, author, screenwriter, producer, documentarian, and an all-out Great Escape expert on the show. He's going to give us some really interesting tidbits about this movie all week, so make sure you tune in and be able to hear some of Steve's Great insight into this great movie, The Great Escape. Welcome to the show, Steve. Steven, excuse me. No, no, actually, you can call me Steve, although my my author name is Steven. No, that's fine, Rob. I'm thrilled to be here to talk about my all-time favorite movie. I call it my Desert Island movie. If I was allowed to take one movie to a desert island to play for the rest of my life, it would be The Great Escape. But if you, if you know it by heart, you don't need to take it. You have it in your head. So you might want to take a different movie. That's true. So you have a little bit of diversity. That's true, but <laughs> all right. So uh, <laughs> I'll take Saving Private Ryan with me. But now The Great Escape is. Uh, it's interesting because it was the first movie I ever went to where I had read the book before I went to see it. And that summer of '63, I had just finished the paperback. My dad brought home the paperback, the Paul Brickhill paperback. Uh, and uh, it was a it was truly exciting to go to the movie. I saw it at the Ski Warner Wilshire Theater in L.A., right near Beverly Hills, that summer of '63. Oh wow! And, and uh, if I could ask, how old were you when you saw it in 1963? I was 11. Okay, because I think you are our only guest, at least so far, that actually saw the movie in the theater. So that that's also great that we'll be able to discuss it. And the fact that you've you know met most of the cast and crew. Uh, at some point over your uh, journey, well, the most with the with the great escape, well, the most dramatic, which I don't know if you knew this, but uh, that summer I was riding my little Schwinn Stingray bicycle in Culver City. I came to a stoplight, waiting for the light, and a voice rings out. Can you tell me where MGM Studios is? I turn around, and it was Steve McQueen in a Ferrari asking me the directions wow. for a studio he'd been going to for five years. So I turned out, reading his biography, <laughs> he liked to engage kids, and he asked me where I was going. I said, I'm going to a slot car track to race my race car. And we ended up having a five-second conversation about slot cars and slot motorcycles. Oh, wow. That is so fascinating. Did you ever meet, Have you ever met him after no, that? Did I you tried ever... for years to get an interview with him when I became a film historian, and of course he did not do interviews at all. Because you weren't a kid. Exactly. <laughs> I was a kid, maybe. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I must admit I have heard that story because you mention it on when you, in the uh, commentary that you do on the Criterion Collection. Oh, okay. I have heard that story before, but, that, but that's fine. Uh, I'm assuming that most of our viewer, our listeners have not heard that. So uh, it's such a great story. It's such, it's such an amazing thing that randomly you were able to meet one of your heroes uh, just because he somehow got lost going to some of the same place every day oh, for how many years? I don't think he was lost at all. I think he liked to talk to kids. He saw me sitting on a bike. We exchanged pleasantries. Um, if you read his biography, he never liked talking to adults. But he would engage kids. And as you know, he was very involved with the reform school that he was a part of uh, when he was a kid. Oh, wow. Very fascinating. We'll, we'll get into that a little more later. So episode 136 begins with Blythe finishing his question to Henley and goes all the way till we get to see said riding across the road on a bike. So basically, as we were discussing on Friday, 
what happened is, is that Henley and Blythe are sitting on the train. They see the Gestapo men starting to, to come down, checking passengers along the way. And Henley smartly decides that Blythe will never make it through any type of real questioning. So let's just get off the train, even if we have to jump off of it. So they go to the end of the train. They walk out of the caboose. Henley throws his cigarette out. I guess he doesn't want to doesn't want to choke on it when he's uh, jumping off the train. <laughs> and <laughs> Blythe at that point says to him, uh, "So the, we're, we're leaving because the police are on the train." Obviously, as everyone knows, he's completely blind at this point. Donald Pleasance does a great job pretending to be blind through most of through most of the parts of the movie where he's supposed to be pretending. Obviously, if you pay as much attention as we are, and I'm assuming Steve, you've noticed this also. There are a lot of points where you can tell that there's no way a blind man would do what he just did. You know, different things <laughs> like that. You know, they, they, Garner, Garner does a nice job of, of, of directing him and, you know, moving him away from, from things along the way, uh, you know, that uh, different obstacles that he might come across. But in general, it's, it's hard for an actor to, to completely pretend he's blind when he's about to jump off a train. Well, I'm, as you are, a big fan of the screenplay. Uh, Sturgis does put a title card up at the beginning saying this is exactly the way the escape happened. Of course, there was no blind man in the original escape. The, the filmmakers, the screenwriters, the various writers who dramatized this added things, obviously, for dramatic effect. There was no motorcycle chase. There was no stealing of an aircraft. But it added so much power. And I think uh, in telling stories true stories. And I have personal experience uh, uh, with this because I produced a film in 2002 called Silent Night, a true World War II story of a, of a, a truce in the uh, armed forest between American and German combat troops that happened in a cabin where a woman held a truce for 12 hours. Uh, Linda Hamilton, we were together to play the German woman. So we made some dramatic changes to the story to add dramatic, to add some tension is and it, drama. Is that similar to you know, just uh, a Midnight Clear? Is that like this based on the same event? No, different, different. This is uh, based on an actual story I learned uh, through a TV series called, I think it was called uh, uh, Unsolved oh, okay. Mysteries. And they talked about a reunion between the young boy who's held truce and one of the American soldiers years later. And I thought that quite fascinating. Then we researched it more and found out that one of the, the kid had grown up and moved to Hawaii and become a baker. So we got that story. But we added some dramatic effect. And I think with The Great Escape, um, there were things that just heightened the drama without disturbing the story. The original, As anyone who's read the book and has learned about this reality, the prisoners were not summarily asked like they are in the movie. They were basically shot one or two at a time by the sword, which obviously isn't as dramatic. Uh, I'm assuming you've seen the, the, the pseudo-sequel to this movie, you know, The Great Escape to yeah, the uh, Untold once. Story. And in that no. one, I, it's not as good. There's, I, I completely agree with you on that. I see I see by the look <laughs> on your face, you know, that no, 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 no one no, else no, can no, see no, that, but I can. It, that is not something that you're... Ironically directed by the actor who plays Goff in The Great Escape. Yes. So, uh, yeah, no, mm -hmm. so, um, but... So what I was going to say is in that movie, they actually show them being shot right. in smaller groups. Right. So they they're, they're, they take things uh, a little more... It, it goes a lot closer. It's a lot closer to, to Brickhill's story, sure. the way that they... Sure, no, absolutely. There. By the way, if anybody ever gets to Poland and can get over to Zagen, which, of course, is now Poland rather than Germany and get to that little enclosure with the tablets with all the names of the, the victims. 
it's it's quite an emotional moment. It was, certainly was an emotional moment for me when I did the Great Escape documentary and we took a camera crew there. But that is the tribute to the the Royal Air Force tribute to the 50 who were shot. And I have, obviously I feature it in my documentary, but it's it's quite emotional. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, that's great. So basically, as we were talking, so Blythe and Henley are, are getting ready to try to get away from the, the Gestapo that are on the train. And so as we mentioned, Blythe realizes that there are police on the train. And Henley's response is yes, and the the Gestapo came with them. So he basically says, let's jump. And Blythe, uh, you know, as as he's very cheery with everything that he says or does, and says, okay, (laughs) all right, no problem. So I prefer you give me a firm push. (laughs) You know, it's funny, (laughs) Donald, as a lot of you guys know, was an actual POW. Yes. And I love that quote in my documentary where at first he started to make suggestions to Sturgis to add a little more realism to the story. And then as he says in the, in the documentary, he says, then I learned, uh, I, I just better just shut up and just be a dutiful uh, young British actor, which he was. Um, his performance is extraordinary. I think in, in many ways, Donald Pleasance is the heart of the movie. Yes. And uh, even though Steve McQueen's performance jump, leaps off the screen, uh, just like his motorcycle, I think that uh, we all love Donald and we all pretty much discovered Donald in this movie, even though he'd been a working actor for a long while. And in fact, was in a, an episode of the Twilight Zone, uh, which I covered in my book recently, uh, the Twilight Encyclopedia. Oh, wow. Okay. So Henley moves, moves along to the edge of the, the caboose and opens up the, the railing uh, pretty easily. You know, you'd think that there'd be more safety measures on the back of a caboose that someone couldn't so simply unlatch it and get out of there. Then they, they walk down two steps, and then uh, he takes Blythe's uh, valise and holds onto it. And Henley then says the quote that you just mentioned a few minutes ago. He says, I'll you win. And then Blythe says, I prefer if you just give me a firm push. Then we get to see the train continuing along its journey. Henley keeps looking to try and figure out when the best time is. I love how he you know, puts his hat firmly on his head a little, you know, he like pulls it down a little bit so that his hat won't fly off as they make their leap from the train. And then he sees a hayfield coming up. And then I, I love the way that he throws up the valise. You know, he throws it really high up. <laughs> and then right. the two of them leap off the train and then they, they tumble down the ground. I mean, I'm assuming neither of them made this uh, jump. I'm, I, it must be stunt, you know, oh, yeah, the yeah, stuntmen that did it and not them. These are a couple of stunt guys, obviously. Uh, yeah. As I mentioned in my documentary, uh, Sturgis and the production rented the train cars and the engine. Uh, and Garner, in his interview, talks about a little how nerve-wracking it is because uh, even though they had rented the train, they did not have total control over the tracks. So at times, because uh, the way they describe it is uh, the sequence with the uh, with uh, Garner and Pleasance about to jump off the train was being filmed with a um, I think there's a flat car behind uh, behind the train with the camera a crane on it so they could swing out okay yeah they sense. could swing out and and get the pictures of them jumping that way um, uh, but 
Garner talks about the fact that at times they'd have to swing the arm in because there was a guy on a radio saying there's a high-speed train coming here in 30 seconds. So they're wheeling in the train <laughs> crane, or the, the camera crane, and then boom, 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 boom. So it was a little nerve-wracking. Um, but they got it done, and of course those uh, they, they, those trains were, were rented. Kind of interesting, the, the train cars. I, I've, I've probably watched that sequence inside the train car a thousand times. I, I feel like I know everybody on the train, including the Hitler Youth kid and the two old ladies. By the way, the two old ladies, probably, yeah. you know, one of the few women in the whole show, you know, they... Right. We, oh. we actually discussed it last week that the, 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 the two women at the end at the, in the back row keep looking back and forth. And, and the whole question is, is, are they, you know, what are they saying to themselves? Are they saying, oh, these are people, these, these escaped prisoners that are here? Or are they more in awe of the fact that they're, they're watching movie stars? I think they're you know, saying, are there. weren't we supposed to be working on arsenic and old lace today? <laughs> Could be. <laughs> it's very possible. Now, how many did you remember? How many trains they they actually had? How two, many cars did they film in? Two passenger did cars in, and a flat car. Right, because the big question that we discussed last week was: Was it one car that they just refurbished each time? You know, the different angles and just changed the the you know the actors on each car, or were they doing it you know simultaneously? I think they had you know, needed the, the two both, cars both because, trains. as you see, there's there's movement in between cars at times where Garner goes through. Et cetera, et cetera. So I think in right. one car is uh, Bartlett and uh, you know and uh, McDonald, who uh, get the seats of, uh, get in front of the German mm-hmm. soldiers. Boy, that talk about cross percentage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> with, uh... <laughs> that uh, we, we discussed how, how he had to have a lot of guts to do that. <laughs> so, so yeah, so. Yeah, that, that's an yeah. interesting sequence. And right. okay. uh, I'll tell you, when the movie starts from, I mean, I love the, every aspect of the movie, but when they get out of the camp, it it re, it just gets into third gear and just really, really just becomes a thrilling adventure. And for, for many of us, at least for me back in 63, it was the beginning of my learning about World War II because I read comic books. I was a big fan of the combat TV series on ABC, but I, I, I did not know that much about the war. I had I'd seen The Longest Day the previous year. So The Great Escape was further historical training into what it was like. And no, I had not known what it was like to be in Germany. And it, it, it's kind of creepy trying to sneak past all these German checkpoints. Right. Now, did, did any of your relatives fight in World War II? In Germany, meaning your father, your uncle, cousins, I don't know. I mean, you, you mentioned that you were 11 when this came out, so therefore, if you were born in Oh, well, my father, you know, uh, my father so. was one of the last draftees. He was 41 when the, the war broke out, so he was drafted in 43, and he just spent three months in Battle Creek, Michigan. As we say in the family, he was in charge of guarding the Kellogg's Corn Flakes plant. <laughs> I, went, uh, I was just about to say that. I mean, I'm, I'm from Michigan, so I'm, I'm aware of the fact that, that that's what Battle Creek is is, is known for. <laughs> oh, yeah. He went to Fort Custer, caught pneumonia, was discharged honorably after three months. But he told me that the only thing he remembered about World War II was shooting crap. Okay. And, and driving a truck. He was a company clerk. Uh, so, <laughs> no, he did not see combat. But my father-in-law was a combat engineer who landed D-Day plus three, and went all across France building bridges wow. and engineering feats for the U.S. Army, got all the way to the bulge. Yeah, yeah, and my uncle, 
And he yeah. was he and he was willing to discuss his experience. He was uh, obviously not when you were eleven. Not when you know, I was. Must, have been, must have been later. <laughs> <laughs> but his brother was wounded in the bulge, and then he went to see him, and then the war. I guess he was. Uh, he. It's funny, uh, Carl Carl Price, my father-in-law. He was in the uh, division band, so a lot of his memories of World War II, in addition to building bridges, was playing the saxophone in the division band. Oh wow, interesting. Okay, I mean, I, I have an uncle that, that that was in the Battle of the Bulge, and I mean, he passed away, I think, about four years ago. But he would never talk about it. You know, I, I actually lent him Band of Brothers once, so he would sit and watch it. And he, I think, he turned it off in the middle. He said it was it was too painful to to watch. Rule it. of thumb: any real combat veteran who was in the midst of combat does not talk about it. I was on a set with Charles Durning, the great character actor. Charles Durning, you know, he's kind of a, a portly actor. He was in Tootsie. He was in Sting. He was a ranger on D-Day, Point du Ha. I mean, he was the wow. best of the best. It's hard to picture Durning looking so yeah. so tough. <laughs> but uh, he was in a classic hand-to-hand combat fight where he was knifed in the throat and horrifying things. And we sat at the lunch table when I was working on a movie with him, and he just wouldn't talk much about it. Although I learned later that one of his other duties is he was responsible for identifying the victims of the Malmedy massacre wow. in the bulge. Wow. So this is a guy who had to go into that snow and find these frozen people who've been shot and identify them. Pretty horrific. Yeah, sounds like it. All right, well, moving along with the, the movie. So the two of them roll down the hill, and then Henley, or actually the stuntman playing Henley, grabs Blythe, grabs the stuntman playing Blythe, and they quickly hide behind one of the haystacks. I guess it was pretty convenient that they had those haystacks just sitting there right in that open field, which was nicely done. Then we, we get a close shot of the, the two of them behind the... Well, actually, now we actually get to see the actors uh, behind the haystack. And again, the first thing Henley does is he fixes his hat. <laughs> so. I, love, I love that hat. It's a, his wardrobe was pretty classic on this show. Definitely. Yeah, completely. Yeah. I mean, but, but the point is, is that he's constantly checking to make sure his hat is on firmly. I wonder, I, I, I assume that that was probably just an idiosyncrasy of his own. I doubt it was something that uh, Sturgis told him to do. You know, keep tugging your hat. <laughs> Even when he made during the escape, he tugs his hat. Well, Sturgis, one thing that should be said about John Sturgis, I don't know if any of the previous people have mentioned it, is that... Well, none John of the previous Stur- people have met Sturgis like you, so... <laughs> well, Sturgis, if you look at his films, he pays... All directors pay attention to casting. Obviously, if you cast correctly, your job is easier. Sturgis really felt that every character should be carefully cast. I think that if you look at The Great Escape, it probably has one of the best casts ever now, obviously, it just come off The Magnificent Seven, arguably another movie with the greatest cast ever. But I think that uh, Sturgis paid a lot of attention. I think Bob Relier told me this. Bob said that Sturgis really paid a Bob lot was, of attention. Bob was the second unit director? What was he? Uh, Bob Relier was Sturgis's assistant. Okay. Right. And uh, he would basically, uh, and later became uh, an executive with Steve McQueen's company, Solar. Mm-hmm. So he's very a very big f- uh, uh, friend of, fi- of Steve McQueen, but he was Sturgis's assistant on this film, and they paid a lot of attention to these actors, even the Germans. I would say that in the whole movie, and I love the movie, as you know, the only actor that I felt was just a little miscast, a little over the top, 
was the little mustache he got, or I don't even, I guess he has a mustache, the little Gestapo Pricing. guy with the, with the, yeah, with the valise, exactly. Yes. He seems a little bit over the top. Everybody else seems deadly realistic. He seemed like a little bit of a caricature of a Gestapo guy. But uh, all the Germans, if you think about it, you know, going, all, you know, with, with uh, Frick the ferret and... Till Q. Till Q. Yeah, I say I call it Tilkui. It probably is pronounced differently. Right. Then, uh, then of course the main ferret, which is Garner's, you know, Garner's uh, uh, pigeon, um, whose name Werner, I'm escaping. Werner. Werner. Thanks. Robert Graf. Robert Graf. Who, now, by the way, one of the things I mentioned, I've mentioned numerous times, whenever whenever his character comes along, Werner, you know, he talks about the fact that he was in the Boy Scouts and he was in the Hitler Youth and stuff like that. So he makes it sound as if he's uh, so in his twenties, but the actor was 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 ten years older than Garner. He was he was in his forties when they made the movie. So I, yeah, I just found that always very funny. Apparently suffering from cancer at the time. Yes. He had a he had an arm that was uh, I guess I don't know what the deal was with the arm, but it was giving him problems. Um, and he had problems with his teeth also. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I could tell you stories of my teeth that make your hair stand on end. There you go. <laughs> But don't tell anyone that I that I called the dentist the butcher. <laughs> we could probably do the dialogue for the whole movie. Uh, pretty um, much, I think so. <laughs> but we'll, we'll save that for a special episode some other time. <laughs> so the two of them are behind the haystack, and at this point, Garner uh, Henley says to Blythe, "Are you all right?" And he goes, "Yes, I'm fine. That's quite exciting. <laughs> it isn't stopping, you know." So. I just try and picture it. You know, here you have a blind man jumping off a train, rolling down a hill, and he has no idea where he is. <laughs> he's complete, He should be completely disoriented at this point. You know, he still has his faculties with him enough to say, did the train stop? You know, the train continues. Henley says, nope, we're all right. And then we, we see the train continue. In this, and they really give us a, a nice view. There's a, there's a good five, six seconds of it, you know, trailing off into the sunset or wherever, you know, I think this takes place in the morning, so it can't really be in the sunset, but, uh, yeah. And then we move on to the next scene where we get to see this quaint little town, these nice buildings, you know, and then the, uh, seren serenity of the whole area is slightly disturbed by someone on a, uh, bicycle riding down the, uh, the path, riding down the road. And then we, as, it get, as this bike rider gets closer, we can see that it's Sedgwick. And he basically glides across the road as he's moving along. And that's pretty much how this particular minute ends. Is there anything specific you wanted to discuss about this minute? Well, it's funny because in 93, uh, when I went to Bavaria with Deborah Goodwin to do the Great Escape documentary... You know, we obviously went to Munich, we went to Gosler Geistag Studios, we went to the forest. But part of our mission was to find some of these locations, and we were clueless. That's why it was so exciting for me to get involved in the documentary, uh, which you know about, the, the coolest, coolest guy movie, right. movie ever, uh, where Chris, uh, Chris Espinon and his team were, I would consider them to be forensic documentarians, so they were able to find all the locations. Wow. And uh, this is in Bavaria. Uh, it's not far from the base of operations for the crew, which was in the little town of Fusen. Mm -hmm. Fusen seen mostly later on when... Uh, in the cafe. 
Well, that as well. But we also see it when uh, Bartlett and uh, McDonald are being chased right. through that town. That is Fusen. And that is uh, it, it, the rail rates, railroad station, uh, I believe, where um, where Ashley Pitt is shot is also Fusen. Right. Cafe where Garner, excuse me, where Coburn is told to take cover as those German officers are being machine gunned. That is Fusen. Mm-hmm. By the way, that whole cafe sequence is, is was built. There was no cafe there. They built the whole thing as a set. There's no and cafe today, there's, Suzanne? That's what you're saying? There's no, there's no <laughs> cafe Suzette. Suzette, did Suzette? you say Suzanne? I think, I, I think it's cafe Suzette. I thought it was Suzanne, but it, it could be. Maybe. And by the way, the, they had run out of extras by then. I think a lot of the guys in the latter part of the movie that appear as actors are real crew members. I think the guy who the plays must, the waiter the guy or the other who, guy? Uh, tells him to take off. Yeah. The main, the main way there. The other guy, okay. the, the, both of them, I think. Oh, wow. That's actually fascinating. Exactly. All right. So you want to tell people how they can get in touch with you? I have a, a number of um, uh, associations, mostly through Facebook. I have two sites on, I actually have three sites on Facebook. One is Steve Rubin, R-U-B-I-N. I also have a, a new site called Steve Rubin's Saturday, Saturday Movies, which where I publish a classic film review every week. And then I have, uh, those of you who know my work, I'm a, a rules expert on the James Bond series. So my, uh, I have a site called the James Bond Movie Encyclopedia, which is the title of the book I wrote. The fourth edition is currently in the stores, uh, wow, just in great. time for the new Bond. Which movie. came out hopefully three months ago, by the time we're recording this. <laughs> hopefully. We'll, we'll, we'll know by the time <laughs> when people listen, listen to this, they'll, they'll know. Okay, and while you're doing that, you can go rate, review, and subscribe on any podcatcher that you might be using to listen to this show. You can get in touch with us by email, thegreatminute at gmail.com. Our Facebook group is The Cooler. Our website is thegreatescapeminute.com. And our Twitter account is greatescapemxm. So, Steve, you want to come back again tomorrow? I am there. All right, so we shall see you tomorrow, and we'll see all of our listeners tomorrow. And so until then, tally-ho. Tally-ho. Tally-ho.